All right, First Peter chapter, we're going to begin, we're going to do a little outline. If you got your uh, outline, you'll grab that in a moment. We're going to do an outline of the whole book. We're going to do a little background on Peter, and then we're going to get to chapter one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We ask as we go to your word right now that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Lord, I thank you that no one is here by chance. No one's watching online by chance. It's all by divine appointment. We ask that you administer to every heart. You know what's going on in every life that is here. You know those who may be hurting, those who may be grieving, those who may be struggling financially, those who may have prodigal sons and daughters, or whatever it might be. And Lord, I just pray you would meet them here. You would minister to every heart. We thank you, Lord, that you are the reason for the season. We thank you that because your son, you sent your son to suffer and die, that we have eternal life. We ask now again, as we go to your word, that you would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. Amen. So, one of the things we always want to talk about, so we just finished James, and if you're new to Calvary Chapel, we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Encourage you to be here this coming Thursday. We will be in 2 Kings chapter 19. You can read ahead. So we started, in, we started in Genesis, and we just go right through the Old Testament. We started in Matthew, and now we've come, we're getting close to the end of the New Testament, and we're going to look at 1 Peter this morning. But one of the things I love to do is make sure that we understand the context. What is context? It's who wrote the letter, who was it written to, why was it written, and what were the circumstances and events that were taking place when the letter was being written? You've heard me say when you take a text out of context, all you got left is a con, amen? So we want to make sure that we understand who's writing it. We know the Holy Spirit is writing it, but he uses Peter to pen it. We're going to talk a little bit, we're going to take some time and talk about Peter, because I think he's somebody that uh, was used mightily, but was also a man who was really, prior to being filled with the Holy Spirit, was all over the place. And maybe you feel like that's your life, where you're on fire for the Lord one minute, and then your life doesn't even look like a Christian the next, and maybe you go back and forth. And that was Peter, and we'll talk about him. And then we'll get to the outline of the entire book in a moment, and then we'll take a look at the first few verses in chapter one. So first I want to talk about Peter. You know, Peter is, you know, this, first of all, this book was written in 63 to 64 AD, and there's a reason why that's significant. When you understand the timeline, we know that this is right around the time when Caesar Nero was coming to power. Now, Caesar Nero was as evil a man who has ever walked on this planet. He was Hitler evil. He was so evil. And he was a man who hated Christians with a passion. He was the one that made it sport to persecute Christians, to feed Christians to lions. We know that he would take Christians and set them cover them in pitch, set them on fire and use them to light his garden. And he would travel around in his garden in his chariot with no clothes on. He was a crazy man. Nero, we've heard that term where he fiddled while Rome burned. And so this, and he blamed that on the Christians. And so there was great persecution of Christians at the time this letter was written, and it's about to get a lot worse. And so as this letter is being written, it's encouraging those who are suffering, but it's also preparing them because suffering's about to get worse. And none of us has any idea what's going to happen in our country. We don't know what persecution is yet. Even with the whole COVID thing, we don't understand persecution. None of us have been thrown in jail. Certainly none of us have been fed to lions. If you could potentially be fed to lions if you came to church next week, it'd be interesting to see how many people were here. I think live stream would go way up, right? But the reality is 
that there was such incredible persecution. So we need to understand that as we read this letter and we see Peter encouraging and exhorting the church. It's interesting, the apostle Paul was killed by Nero right around this time. And when Peter writes this letter, he probably has less than a year before he's going to be put to death. So there's great persecution, great suffering taking place. And we see that uh, Peter was writing to Christians who had already endured great persecution. They've already been scattered. We'll see that in this morning's text. So they've already been scattered because of persecution. They're basically running for their lives. They've left their homes behind. A lot of them have left family members behind. And so now they're, they've scattered all different places. But you know what happens when Christians scatter? So does the gospel. And God allows that. He, what Satan means for evil, God will use for good. But this letter is written to them to encourage them. Some of them are in hiding. Some of them, again, have been lost everything from a world's perspective. So those receiving this letter had already suffered persecution, but the suffering was about to get a lot worse. It was written as a source of encouragement for those in the midst of suffering. And who better to speak to God's grace in the midst of such trials and difficulty than the very one who had experienced the incredible depths of God's grace. Very few people understood grace like Peter did. And we're going to talk about Peter's life in a moment, but we'll understand why he understood grace. You see, while at this point, Peter is one of the incredible pillars of the faith, who along with Paul could certainly be thought of as one of the most faithful and godly men on the planet, not only in his day, but in all time. Peter was a man used mildly by God, but Peter was also a man that took a long time to get there. Peter was a man who would struggle. It was through Peter that the Holy Spirit spoke with great boldness in the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people got saved in a single day. But we must not forget that Peter, prior to Pentecost was prideful, impetuous, and spiritually immature, Peter of the Gospels. I call him Mr. Ready, Fire, Aim, right? <laughs> Peter was just a loose cannon, and Peter would say things, and it would just go from one extreme to the other. You know, when the Lord says to you, Peter, the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you, and then an hour later, he says, he calls him Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. Same guy. And maybe you could you feel like that's your life as well sometimes. Peter is mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone else except Jesus. Peter's mentioned the most. No one speaks as often, uh, no one speaks as, often as Peter uh, to Jesus, and Jesus speaks more about Peter than any other individual in the entire and all the Gospels. Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other disciple, but Peter was also the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. He rebuked Jesus. Dude. <laughs> Peter confessed more boldly and accurately than any other, but Peter also denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than any other disciple. So he was a man who confessed and a man who rebuked the Lord. He was a man who denied the Lord, but he was a man who loved the Lord. Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple, and Peter, along with uh, the disciples, uh, was other disciples was addressed by Jesus as Satan. Here's a few mentions of Peter. When Jesus woke up early in the morning to pray before sun, the sun came up, Peter led the other disciples on a hunt to find Jesus so they could tell him what he should do. Jesus is praying. Peter's bringing guys to tell Jesus what he should do. Doesn't get any more ridiculous than that, but I want to say this. Sometimes in our prayers... We tell Jesus what he should do, and we never need to tell Jesus anything. 
We ask him. We come humbly and broken before him. We don't tell him. Can I get an amen to that? He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. We're all idiots compared to God. We come humbly before him. We cry out to him. We don't direct him. He directs us. But Peter early on was wanting to give him directions. He put out his nets in direction of Jesus and brought in a, mess, a massive catch of fish. He went on a unique, unique outward, um, outreach trip with the other disciples. He stepped out of the boat during the rainstorm and walked on the water. People like to talk about the fact that he sank, but at least he got out of the boat. Amen? He walked on water for a few seconds, and then he noticed the waves, and he sank into the water. He was the one who said, Lord, whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a powerful statement. And the Lord says, the Holy Spirit has revealed this to you. He saw Jesus in glory together with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. You guys remember that? And he saw them, but then what did he do? Oh, Lord, it's good to be here. Let's build three tabernacles, one for each of you. He was putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. And God the Father opened up heaven and basically told Peter, shut up. <laughs> Peter. Sometimes we think we've blown it so much we can't be used. Peter's such a picture of God's grace. The Lord opened up heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. That means you be quiet. Take it to shutty town. Hear him. Amen. <laughs> Listen to the Lord. He was the one who asked Jesus after the encounter with the rich young ruler what the disciples would receive for giving up everything to follow Jesus. Hey, Lord, you know, I noticed that, you know, talked to, so what do we get? What kind of, what kind of, you know, what's this gig pay, right? Guys, we just follow the Lord and what he gives us is far more than we're worthy of. He was the one who insisted Jesus not wash his feet and then commanded Jesus to wash his whole body. This guy's all over the map. Oh, you're not going to wash my feet. The Lord says, if I don't wash your feet, well, then wash my whole body. (laughs) Peter. You heard Jesus predicted he would deny him three times, and Peter said, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. We know how that turned out. He was the one who cut off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus. You know, The only time we see Peter catching any fish in the Bible is when the Lord tells him to cast out the net. I never see him catch any fish otherwise. And he also is not a good swordsman because I think he was going for his head and all he caught was an ear. (laughs) And then the Lord put his ear back on. So Peter, you know, there's no description of Peter in the Bible, but I kind of think of him as a burly guy, like a big burly guy who just kind of does stuff, you know, and I think Peter that way. And I think of him that way because of all these actions that that take place in scripture. He denied Jesus three times, cursing and swearing that he did not even know the man, refusing to even name the name of Jesus. We'll talk about that in a moment, but, you know, he was there at the fire. He'd already denied him twice. He's warming himself at the enemy's fire. That's a bad place to be, by the way. And as he's warming himself at the anthrokia, hot coal fire, Jesus comes out. He's been beaten, and he catches the eyes of Jesus, and the girl says, you're one of his disciples, and he cusses and says, I don't know him. Guys, when the Lord told him that he was going to deny him, he said, there's no way I will. Well, you know why? Because he was doing it in his own strength. See, all of this is Peter prior to Pentecost. See, Peter's a totally different man when he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And you and I are totally different people when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen to that? See, without the Holy Spirit, we'll, we'll be doing the things that Peter's doing. 
Powered by the Holy Spirit, we can be used as mightily as he was. He was the one who ran with John the disciples to the tomb on the morning of the resurrection after hearing the report that the that Jesus' body was not in the tomb. He was the one who received a personal visit from the resurrected Savior on the day of his resurrection. And while Peter's boldness and impetuous nature had been manifested in some faithful and more often fleshly moments, Peter also experienced the depths of God's grace like few others have. A couple of incidents that immediately come to mind. Again, he denied the Lord. I don't know him. And he went away and wept bitterly. You know, when, when he had cussed and said he didn't know the Lord, then his eyes meet the eyes of the Lord, he ran away and he wept bitterly. And here's our God. What a gracious God we serve. When Jesus rose from the dead and Mary Magdalene was there at the tomb, he said, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I have risen. Can you imagine you're hiding away and you're weeping because you have failed the Lord that you walked with for over three years, who you saw all the miracles he performed, you heard him teach, you know that he's the Savior, you confess that he's the Messiah, then you cussed and said you didn't know him, and now you're away in hiding, and Jesus has died on the cross, and you know that you didn't stand with him, and then the word comes back, not only is he risen, but the Lord wanted me to tell all of you, especially you, Peter, that he's risen. And I would say this, that's the grace of our God. And I believe he would say to all of us, if you're in a place where you've walked away from the Lord, or maybe you're not as close to him as you used to be, he would want you to know that I still love you, and especially, and he puts your name right in there, he'd rather die than live without you. He proved it on the cross. Amen? What a gracious God we serve. In John 21, Peter, having denied the Lord three times, having publicly denied him, is restored publicly. If you'll remember, Peter is fishing. Jesus is on the shore and he cries out to Peter. This is after the resurrection. Peter puts his coat on and jumps into the water. You can tell he's befuddled by it. He gets to the shore and Jesus has, is cooking fish. By the way, that just shows that after we have, in our resurrected bodies, we're still going to be eating. Amen. And no cholesterol. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. No high blood pressure. Rise, kill, and eat. It's going to be good. So here, So he's... He makes the fish, and what's interesting, the word anthrokia for hot coal fire is in the Bible twice, entire Bible twice. And you know how the, a pungent smell stays with you, amen? It was a few years ago, I was walking with my mom, and I walked by this plant, and I smelled it, and I said, man, that's familiar. She said, yeah, that was in our backyard when you were a little boy in the 60s. So, so kind of like music, you know, smells come back. So a, a hot coal fire is very pungent. And so he was at the hot coal fire when he denied the Lord for the third time. And he went away weeping bitterly. Now we see that word again, hot coal fire, and they're sitting on the shore of the Galilee. And there as they're sitting there, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, Right. Don't you love the grace of God that he had denied him three times? No doubt when he smells that fire, it brings him back to that moment. And then the Lord allows him, the one who denied him three times, to confess him three times. That's our Savior. Amen? What a gracious God that we serve. One final note, again, gives me an even greater understanding of the context of these letters. Peter, again, on the night of, before the crucifixion, when the Lord uh, told Peter, again, after he had denied the Lord... We, we see, again, his, his, his heart being broken, and the Lord told him that, he said, here's what he told him, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. He asked for you by name. You know, 
I would hope that we live in such a way, you know, Satan, first of all, Satan is nowhere near, he's not God. He's not the opposite of God. He's not close to God. Can I get an amen to that? He's a, he's a fallen angel. If he's the opposite of anybody. He'd be like Michael, the archangel, right? So he's a defeated foe and he's not omnipresent and he's not omnipotent. He's not all powerful and he's not all knowing. So he's limited in his knowledge, but he knows enough to tempt you. But I have, an, you know, I have an idea he knows some people a lot better, and I, a lot of us he doesn't know by name. And I've said this, and, and I mean it. I hope, that, I hope Satan knows my name. Because you know whose names he knows? Those who are being used by the Lord. Amen? I have friends who say, I hope he almost knows my name. Amen? <laughs> but, but the reality is Satan knew who Peter was, and he asked for him by name. I want that guy, just like he did with Job. Let me have him. Let me go after him. And the Lord told him, he said, I have prayed for you, 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 for your faith that it would not fail, but Peter would end up failing. Then the Lord then said to him, when you return to me, strengthen my brethren. Something Peter had been doing since Pentecost and will continue to do through these letters. See, after Pentecost, Peter was a different man. Once the Holy Spirit came upon him, he went in front of those same people that he cussed and said he didn't know him. When he was scared to death of the Pharisees, he was scared to death of the Roman soldiers. He stands up in front of that crowd and he preaches the gospel with boldness and he's unashamed of the Lord and he's not afraid to die and 3,000 people get saved in one day. Guys, that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Amen? He went away, they waited upon, the Holy Spirit can be with you, in you, or upon you. He's with the world, they call him their conscience. He's in you at salvation. But the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit come upon, coming upon you, being baptized with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As my dad would say, call it what you want, just get it, amen? And we need less of us and more of him. Jesus said, of men born among women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he might increase. If you're struggling today, if you're going through difficulties and trials, if you're having a hard time being faithful, here's the answer for all of us. Less of us, more of him. Amen? You want to walk in victory? You need to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for the example that we see in Peter. By the way, experience is a great teacher, but it doesn't have to be our experience. We can learn from the experience of others. And Peter's experience in the depths of God's grace gives him the ability to better minister and pass on the grace of God to those persecuted and suffering saints. So these next two letters, that's what we're going to be looking at for the next couple months. We're going to see Peter encouraging and pointing to the grace of God to people who are suffering, to people whose lives are on the line, to people who their consequences and circumstances are about to get worse. And he's preparing them for that. And my prayer is that it will minister to us as well. Overview of First uh, Peter, persecution can either cause you to grow or to grumble. Amen? When you're being persecuted, you're either going to grow or you're going to grumble. You're either going to run to the Lord or you're going to run from him. You're either going to cry out to God or you're going to blame God. And sadly, we can all fall into either of those categories if we're not careful. It can, produce, it can produce fruitfulness or bitterness, and it all depends on your response. In writing to these believers struggling in the midst of their persecution, the first, he first reminds them of who they are, that they're born-again believers. Guys, again, I know Joshua asks you every week, how many of you are born again? Born again. Okay. How many of you know that you're going to heaven? 
How many of you know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you? Guess what? That ought to trump whatever else is going on in your life. Amen? We need to be reminded of that. We need to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We need to rest in the fact of whose we are. Not just who we are, but whose we are. We're children of the King. Amen? And he's on the throne, and he's a faithful God, and he's a merciful God, and he's a loving God, and he's a grace, gracious God, and you know what? He hears our prayers, and we can pray to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. We have intimate fellowship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Guys, whatever's going on in life, church, whatever's going on in your life, know that God is greater. He reminds them of who they are. He then exhorts and encourages them on how they should respond. Yeah, you're going to go through tough times. Now what? Tough times are coming. Difficulties coming. Their beliefs should be reflected in their behavior. Their character and conduct can be a reproach, above reproach as they imitate the Holy One who called them. So grab the outline. We'll go through this quickly and then we'll get into the text. We're only going to look at a few verses this morning because they're thick. So the outline, first of all, in 1 Peter 1 through uh, 2.12, we're going to see the salvation of the believer, the belief of Christians. Then we're going to see the sanctification of the believer. So first it's going to be, how are we saved? What do we believe? And then sanctification is, now how do we live? We're justified the moment we're saved, just as if you've never sinned. We're being sanctified being set apart unto the Lord until the day we are glorified, and that doesn't happen until we get to heaven. So we're all being sanctified. We've been justified, just as if you've never sinned, and we're going to see that in the first two chapters. Then we're going to see the sanctification, that call to holiness, and then submission of the believer, behavior of Christians, the call to harmony and unity. Guys, we're all on the same side. You know, there's very few things, I think, that grieve the heart of God more than Christians fighting with each other. Amen? By the way, if you have any animosity toward another believer, fix that today. Amen? We are all family. I don't care what it is that's gotten between you. Fix it. Amen? And humble yourself and pick up the phone and call somebody and tell them that you love them. The enemy wants to divide us. We're going to spend eternity together. We should start getting along now. Amen? He's going to talk to them about the behavior of Christians and the call to harmony and unity. And then finally, the suffering of the believer, the buffering of the Christian, the opportunity to emulate Christ by ministering to others in the midst of personal suffering. You know what? The people in the world watch you the most when you're suffering the most. And it's easy to be the Christian on the cruise ship, but how do you respond in the most difficult moments of life? Do you continue to praise him? Do you continue to worship him? Do you continue to point people to him? As Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He said, shall I praise him in times of blessing and not in times of adversity? It's easy to be, that, again, the Christian on the cruise ship. But guys, Christianity is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship anchored at the gates of hell. And we are in a spiritual battle every single day. And we need to focus on who our God is and what he has done for us and where our home is and why we live and move and breathe. Why do you live and move and breathe? What is your life all about? Here's what it needs to be about. Knowing Jesus and making him known. That's the calling on our life. Loving God and loving people. And that's what God's called us to do. So in the next couple months, we'll see all those things in the outline. If I, give, if I had to get a theme verse, so usually when I look at a letter, I look for the, the theme verse that I think kind of 
tells you what the whole letter is about. And in 1 Peter, it's 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Here's what it says. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. We are in fellowship with the Lord, and and that includes the fellowship of his sufferings. Show me somebody in the Bible used mightily, I'll show you somebody who suffered greatly. There are no exceptions. Throughout scripture, those who are used in the most mighty way suffered the most. Apostle Paul, day and night in the deep, beatings often, all the things he went through, stoned to death at Lystra. And when we say, well, Lord, I want you to use me mightily, but I want to be comfortable. I want you to use me mightily, but Lord, don't touch my kids, don't touch my family, don't touch my job, don't touch my stuff. Amen? Amen. It's all Lord's, isn't it? This, this, if, if you've given your life to the Lord, that means he can do with it whatever he wants. And we should praise him in the midst of it. Because when we get to heaven, it'll all make sense. Amen? It'll all make sense. He's a faithful God. He knows what he's doing. You know, the, the first hug I have with my son in heaven will wipe away all this pain. And the same for all of us that are going through difficulty. You know, there's, that moment is coming when it, eternity's forever. This is like this. It's a vapor of time. If the Lord wants us, to, if the Lord's using us, if our suffering will bring glory and honor to his name, then bring on the suffering. Amen? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's part of what God uses to mold us more into the image of the Savior. And again, I get it. I'm not saying we're going to do jumping jacks every time something bad happens. and We're not going to be you know, leading cheers. But at the same time, we need to lean on the Lord. We need to trust in him. And again, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So let's take a look. We're only going to look at the first two verses this morning because verse 2 is going to, have, is going to help, I hope, uh, clear some things up for a, a lot of us who may be struggling with it. Let's begin. They're looking at, I titled the message this morning, the true source of peace. The true source of peace is not the absence of physical trials or persecution, but it's right standing before God. You know, the peace symbol, see people with the peace symbol. By the way, the peace symbol is godless because it's an upside down broken cross. Amen. Did you know that? We don't need the peace symbol. We need the Prince of Peace. And we don't need the absence of war. If we're waiting for that to have peace, you'll never have peace. Our peace is right standing before God. If you, if you know the Prince of Peace, you can have peace in the midst of the biggest storm and the greatest war. Anything going on around you, you'll still have peace if you know the Prince of Peace. Amen? Then we're going to see the gracious work of God bringing peace to sinful man. We're going to see the work of the Father in one verse. The work of the Father, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the work of the Son. All of that is in verse 2. So let's begin there in verse 1, looking at the letter. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So the ancient writings, as we always talk about, every letter we go through, they're written on scrolls typically. And so they would introduce the writer. We always put yours truly, and we put our name at the end. Well, they would always put it at the beginning. Now, I want you to know right off the bat, when they opened that scroll and they saw Peter, I, I, I imagine that all the people reading this letter, that their hearts were quickened. They were immediately encouraged. They were suffering. They've been scattered. We're going to see into five different cities all over what is modern day Turkey. They're far from where they were. 
and they're alone in a lot of cases, and they've been, you know, their, their lives are on the line, and they get a letter from a man who you could say is like their father in the faith, one of the pillars of the Christian church, this mighty man of God. And when he writes the letter, just seeing the letter from him was already, no doubt, calming their hearts. It was encouraging to them. About two hours after my son died, I got a phone call. The phone call was from the man who God used to disciple me when I was in my early 20s. And I spent 10 years as his assistant pastor. He discipled me. He poured into my life. He threw me into the deep end of the pool. He was the one that God used to ordain me as a pastor. And 32 years earlier, his daughter had died at the age of 23. And when I saw on, the, on my phone that it was from him, I was already encouraged. I was like, this is someone I need to talk to. This is someone who understands what I'm going through. And this is a man who loves me dearly. And you know what? We need that sometimes. Can I get an amen to that? And see, that's what was happening. When they opened that letter and saw it was from Peter, oh, they know that the Lord is going to speak to them through this man that's being used mightily by God, a man who walks in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And it was, it was just an encouragement in a, in, a, in a very, very desperate time. Peter's a pillar of the faith, well known to all believers. And again, I imagine his name brought great weight to the letter, great comfort and encouragement to hear from our fathers in the faith, especially when we're going through a very, very tough time. Notice it says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here, Peter identifies himself as an apostle, the authority which uh, the letter was written. Not Peter, your fishing buddy. You know, not Peter, you know, uh, your old friend, but he may have been in to some of those people. But he's writing with the authority of apostle. Now, what is an apostle? One sent with a message. One sent forth, a messenger sent forth. We know the apostles, qualification for an apostle is they had to have seen the living Christ. And we know there's only, uh, in heaven, there's the na- it says there's 12 pillars with the names of the 12 apostles. And that's why when someone identifies himself as an apostle, I've already thrown up walls. I get... You know, I have thousands of friends. I get all these friends thing. I get emails. I get letters. And when someone says, you know, I'm the apostle, I'm the apostle bishop, blah, 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 blah. And I need to talk to you. I really don't have time for that guy. I'll be honest with you because obviously he's, he doesn't get it. Amen. And if we have a conversation, bro, first of all, did you see the risen savior? And when, when was that? And what Bible verse are you in? Can I get an amen to that? But there's this mentality and you got to be careful. Uh, another thing they call pastors that I just can't stand, reverend. If, any, if I get something that says reverend, I know they don't know me because we only reverence the Lord. We don't revere men, we revere God. Can I get an amen to that? Reverend, not so much. So when he says apostle, that carries weight. Apostles is sent one. He's sent out on a mission. He's been called uniquely by God. He walked with the risen Savior. He has been empowered by the Holy Spirit and this is a man that God speaks through. His name Peter means a rock. Remember that Jesus said, I am Petra. And you know, his name was Simon. He changed his name to Petros, which means a small rock, like a chip off the old block. Amen? I'm the big rock. You're the little rock. Now, only Jesus rocks. Amen? But here's the reality. The Catholic Church has built the whole Pope system on him saying, Upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, the rock he was talking about was himself, not Peter. 
Can I get an amen to that? Now, Peter ends up being used mildly by the Lord, but people are giving that. They, they say the Pope, he can overrule Scripture. Uh, no. Amen? By the way, we need to pray for the Pope. He needs to get saved. Amen? We don't follow men. We don't esteem men. We don't ki- Kissing your ring? I don't think so. We, the only one we bow to is Jesus. Amen? No other name under heaven. We don't bow to men. We don't praise men. We don't worship men. We don't elevate men. They're all stinking about sinners just like the rest of us. We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. Amen? And sadly, can you imagine? Peter's in heaven. Knock it off. I was not the first pope. Amen? <laughs> Stop it already. This is why we need to read the whole counsel of God. Your first pope sunk in the water. Your first pope lopped off ears. Your first pope denied the Lord. Amen. And then he became a spirit-filled man of God. Peter's called of God. He's sent out by God. and He's empowered by the Holy Spirit. When we come to this letter, he's walking with the Lord in power and in might. And so this letter's coming from a man. Again, Peter's letter, not a man's opinion. It's the word of God delivered through the spirit of God through a man of God. Amen. Holy Spirit writes the letters. He just used Peter's hands. At the same time, it's coming from this man, so they know he spends time with the Lord. They know that he is a man who walks with God. They know he's a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit. So as he's writing to them, in no doubt, comforted them greatly. Then he says, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I love the word pilgrim there. A pilgrim is a sojourner. A pilgrim is somebody who's a a resident foreigner, a temporary resident, one who comes from a foreign country to dwell side by side with the natives, but is never truly at home. That is a description of us on this planet. Amen? Let me read that to you again. One who comes from a foreign land. Where is our home? Where is it? It's heaven. We're not home. This is not home. We are residents of heaven. We have eternal life. By the way, we don't get eternal life when we die. We got eternal life when we gave our lives to Jesus. You have it already. Amen? Christians don't die. We just move to a better neighborhood. Amen? We close our eyes on earth and we open them up in glory. Amen? People keep saying that, you know, I'm sorry to hear that your son died or or that you lost him. I said, he's not lost. I know exactly where he is. Amen? Amen? As Christians, death has no sting. It hurts here. We miss them. But guess what? This is but a vapor of time, and we're all going to be together again around the throne of our Savior. Amen? I may have shared this with you already, but I, ask, I had to ask God to forgive me the other day. I was driving in my car, and I was weeping. I said, Lord, you got to forgive me, because if, if you let me go to heaven today, I'll probably run to Mark before I run to you, because I still have you. Amen? He's, he's with me. He hasn't left me. He'll never leave me. He'll never leave you. Isn't that good? Isn't that good to know he'll never leave you nor forsake you? When Satan lies to you and tells you that he did, he never does. No one can snatch you out of his hand ever. Amen? And so we're just pilgrims here. We're just traveling through. This is not our home. And so we don't need to be so anchored into this world that we're having no impact on eternity. Amen? Well, I'd come to church, but, you know, I've got a project going on at home. I need to fix a, Or I've got, you know, there's, there's a, a game on, or I've got places to... And again, look, I'm, I'm not beating you up to be in fellowship. I'm just telling you the Word of God commands that we be in fellowship. 
Forsake not the gathering yourselves together, and all the more as the day approaches. I need, first of all, I need to be in the Word every day, and I love two times a week isn't even enough. I love being with God's people. You come here, you land, you get refueled, and you go back out into the world to fight the spiritual battle. Amen? And if you don't come and get refueled, you're going to run out of gas. Amen? You're going to be in the world, and you're going to start getting battered and beaten up by what's going on around you. We're temporary. We're from a foreign country. We dwell side by side with the world, but this is never truly our home. We minister to the world, but have no fellowship with it. The boat's in the water, but we don't let the water in the boat, amen? We minister to the world. As Christians, our home is in heaven. We are but strangers and foreigners dwelling only temporarily among the natives. Peter, by the Spirit, already encouraging them not to be consumed or overwhelmed by their trials. He's letting them know, hey, to the pilgrims, hey, those of you who are temporarily here, we're all going to heaven. We're going soon, okay? And I just want you to know, hey, guys, I'm writing this letter to you to encourage you that for the brief period of time that you're here, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to let you know that God is still faithful. I'm going to encourage you with his grace and his love and his mercy. And I'm going to encourage you that all the suffering that we may go through is worth it because it is for the kingdom of God and for his glory. Amen? No suffering is wasted. He's a faithful God. It's already encouraging them. It's all temporary. It's for but a moment. We're just passing through. So easy for us to get thrown off by our circumstances and allow the temporary to get our eyes off the eternal. You've heard me say this before. People say he's so heavenly minded. He's no earthly good. I've never met that person. Here's what I meet. People so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. That your day is bummed out by something bad happening in the temporary that won't matter in heaven. Amen. By the way, all that stuff that you prize, it's all going to burn. Amen. It's all going to burn. That thing, that thing that you, that thing that you thought was so important and so significant, you spent a, a lot of money on it and whatever, and that's fine. But here's the reality: that won't matter in heaven. You know when you get a new car and you park at the mall and you park like all the way out on the outside and you take three car spots because you don't want your car dinged. Amen. And then that first ding happens, and what do you do? Oh. Car's two years old, you squeeze it in wherever it fits, amen? It's, it doesn't even matter. It just doesn't matter anymore. And you know, the reality is as believers, we shouldn't be living this world so caught up with our stuff that we're parking four miles away to make sure that it doesn't get dinged, to recognize it's just stuff. By the way, it's all God's stuff too. Sometimes we should give some of that stuff away to people that need it, Amen? So easy for us to get thrown off by our circumstances to allow the temporary to get our eyes off the eternal. If Satan can't destroy you, he will try to distract you. If he can't get you to go to hell with him, he'll try to distract you and make you ineffective for the kingdom of God. As we talked about on Thursday night, if you were here, the enemy will try to get you to give up. Well, this is what you're called to do, and he just, he'll just wear you out to where you just say, you know what? I've got my get out of hell free card. I'm going to heaven. I'll show up at church a couple times a month, and I'm just going to go live my life, and Satan will leave me alone. I really hope I'm on his top 10 list. I really do. I want to live in such a way that God will be glorified. Guys, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Amen? Nothing else is going to matter. She's letting them know. Guys, hey, pilgrims, just a reminder, this isn't home. I know you're suffering. He's not going to say that the suffering doesn't exist. He's not going to act like it doesn't hurt. But he's reminding them it's only for a small time. It's only for a little while. 
And then that suffering is going to come to an end. The word dispersion there, pilgrims of the dispersion, that means a scattering. The Christians had been scattered through persecution. And again, what Satan means for evil, God will use for good. Because now there's churches popping up all over what is now modern day Turkey. Why did that happen? Because the enemy attacked and through the dispersion it helped in fulfilling the great commission to go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. So again, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, all areas located in or around what we know today as modern Turkey. So 1 Peter is a circular letter to Christians who had been scattered through persecution, who were now enduring persecution in their temporary dwelling places, having reminded them where home really is, something we can't be reminded of enough. He now reminds them of who they are. So he says, guys, it's all temporary. He reminds them that what you're going through right now won't last forever, that your home is really heaven, and now he's going to remind them of who they are. And this is for all of us this morning, and we're going to see this in this one verse, the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and the work of the Son in our lives. Look at verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. If you underline verses in your Bible, you need to underline that one. In this one verse work of the Father, work of the Son, work of the Holy Spirit. And what he's doing is he's telling these people who are being persecuted. He's telling these people who've already lost many of them everything. He's telling people that could be fed to lions next week. He's telling people who, whose many of their families have disowned them. They've left their homes behind. They're sojourners. He reminds them of who they are in the Lord. And we need to be reminded again and again and again of who we are in the Lord. Elect, the word there means chosen by God. Everybody's getting a headache already. Okay, we're going to talk about this. Chosen by God. So did God choose you to be saved? What's the answer? Okay, he did. So does that, does that mean he chooses some people not to be saved? No. And here's how we know. Read the rest of the verse. Look what he says. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. See, God has always known who would be saved. He knows everything. When you say, does God know? The answer is always yes. Whatever is after that, he does. It's yes. So God knows everything. He's all knowing. Now, I remember when my dad was a pastor back in the, uh, when I was in high school, and there was a group of guys in the church that started teaching that God couldn't know the unknowable and that God could change his mind if he wanted to. And then I remember going to the Sunday night meeting where there was my dad and a guy named Steve Gregg. You might know him. He's got a Radio, and then Danny Lehman, who's the head of YWAM, who are two of my dad's assistant pastors. And these three guys, I remember being like 14 years old listening to this discussion. And they literally thought, here's, what, here's, here's where we have problems. When you start equating the greatness of God and limiting it to your ability to understand. Amen? We are finite beings trying to grasp an infinite God. Amen? Now, we're going to be infinite. We're going to live forever. But we have finite minds. We don't grasp it all. By the way, you want a headache? He's outside of time and space. Think about that for about five seconds. Well, where are you, where are you if you're outside of space? Headache? I don't know. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Outside of time. He, he, where was he building? He was there. Where was he before that? He was there. He's always been there. Well, how can he always been there? He's always been there. He's always going to be there. Amen? Your head explodes. Why? 
He's God, we're not. Amen? And so what happens is, people look at things like, well, if God chose me, then, okay, I've been chosen by God. That means some people aren't chosen by God, which means... You know, start going through TULIP, total depravity, limited atonement. Now, if you're, if you're a Calvinist here, if you're Reformed theology, we love you, God bless you, and I count you as a brother, but you're wrong. <laughs> because God's atonement is not limited to a few. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. For God so loved the, did you say the elect? When he's witnessing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, do we see the word predestination or elect anywhere in there? You know what he says? You must be born again. Amen. There's never that discussion about, well, well, Nicodemus, if you're one of the elect, then you will respond. No. Since we responded, we know we were one of the elect. Kind of get an amen to that. Here's what it says. God has always known to the foreknowledge of God. He knows everything. He knew men would sin. He, would send his, he knew he would send his son to redeem us, that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. We could talk about this for 2,000 years. It's been dated, debated that long already. But the key is to look at it in light of Scripture, according to the foreknowledge of God, chosen by God based on his foreknowledge of who would respond to the gospel. Amen? Did God know that you were going to respond to the gospel before he created the universe? What's the answer? Yes. He did. So based on his foreknowledge, he's chosen you. Amen? He already knew that you would respond. Now, you're already getting a headache. You're like, all right, I don't understand it. (laughs) But it's in the Bible for a reason. According to his foreknowledge, because he knew who would respond, those are the people that are chosen. People say, well, how do I know if I'm chosen? Respond, you're chosen. Amen? (laughs) Amen? How do I know if I'm one of the elect? Respond to the gospel. You're one of the elect. Amen? God knew before the foundational world if you would respond or not. Here's the key. But he doesn't force you to respond. Amen? He does not make you respond. Salvation is offered universally. It's accepted individually. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? So whosoever is all of us. He offers it to you universally, but now you must accept it individually. God will not force a relationship upon you. He won't do that. He loves you. He would, he does, he'd rather die than live without you. He proved it on the cross of Calvary. And again, we were chosen by God because he knew beforehand who would respond to the gospel. Does God know and has he always known who would be saved? The answer is yes. Does that mean that he forced salvation on some and forbid it from others? See, here's the changes the character of God. Here's what happens. If God predestined everybody, by the way, you only see predestination, speaking of believers, never of unbelievers anywhere in scripture. Okay. But if God chose people to be born and to live with no chance to be saved and predestined them for hell, what would that make him? It would change his character, wouldn't it? Amen? There's this whole thing of limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for the whole world. He only died for the elect. Because if he died for the whole world, they'd all be saved. Stop with your man-made logic. We know what the whole counsel of God says. He died for the whole world. Amen? So salvation is offered to you, and where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. There's no limited atonement. There's no limited grace. Amen? And so he offers it to you. Anyone who responds can be saved, but you must respond to be saved. You must recognize you're a sinner and say, I recognize I'm a sinner and my need for a Savior. 
I recognize that Jesus died for me. I believe what he did for me. And I surrender my life to him. Guys, it's not enough to just pray a prayer and walk an aisle. We need to surrender our lives. He must be more than Savior. He must be Lord. Amen? He sits on the throne of your life. You walk with him. Your life belongs to him. That means he can do whatever he wants with your life. And guys, we can rest in that because he know, we know what he will do. He will use for his glory, and that's what matters. Amen? It will impact eternity and praise God for it. Your heads are all exploding, I know. The Bible says he desires that none should perish, no, not one. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not a son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The Bible clearly teaches both the sovereignty of God and the foreknowledge, uh, the sovereignty and the foreknowledge of God and the free will of men. Does the Bible teach that we have free will? What's the answer? Does it teach that God is sovereign? What's the answer? Both of those things are true. I remember being in the, on my 20th wedding anniversary of 17 years ago when my wife and I went down to Mexico and I was out in the ocean, and this guy came out, and we started talking. We ended up talking like four hours about theology. As soon as they find out you're a pastor, people just go, oh, okay. So what happens is, he starts saying, so do you believe in the sovereignty of God? I said, of course I do. Oh, then you're a Calvinist. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You believe in the sovereignty of God. I said, I believe in the free will of man. We got to choose one. No, I choose both, because the Bible teaches both. Amen? And I, and I hate when they put labels. Are you, are you Armenian, or are you a Calvinist? I'm a Bibbalist. Amen? And not Armenian. With, oh, you can lose your salvation and workspace salvation. Over here, it's all God and you can't do anything. Look, it is all God. To God be all the glory. He's sovereign. He's faithful. He gets all the praise, the glory, and honor. He saved me. I didn't do anything to, to save myself, but I had to respond. Amen? And if we, if we disagree, it's okay. Still love you. Again, uh, we, we can be brother and sisters in Christ and disagree with this, but to me, it does change the character of God. Limited atonement. No bueno. I don't believe in that. No. Because then, oh, he predestined it. Because here's the question I always ask when they, and I get beat up in the corner, and, and they, they want to take you out to lunch, and then they tell you, well, you're really intelligent, so why don't you explain this to you? You'll be a Calvinist like me. And they always love to do that. I've had that conversation too many times. Now I catch them when they ask me, oh, you're a Calvinist, you want to, I'm not doing that. No. Amen. But here's what happens. I always say to them, I sure hope your kids are elect. What if God didn't cho choose two of your kids? How are you going to feel about that? Oh, uh, so isn't it up to God? God died for you. Did Jesus die for your kids? Is his salvation, can they be saved? Or is there no chance for them to be saved? Oh, well, uh, I think because, you know, they're in my family. No, no, whoa, whoa, where does that say that in the Bible? So the whole point is, guys, we need to recognize he desires that none should perish. Aren't you glad? He'd rather die than live without you. He's such a faithful God. I have no problem with God being in control and me still having free will at the same time. How about you? Does God know the choices you're going to make before you make them? What's the answer? Of course he does. Another headache. Your head just exploded. Of course he does, because he knows everything. So he already knows. He has foreknowledge. So he knows he's going to be saved. He knows he's not going to be saved. And he chose you based on his foreknowledge of who would, recept, who would accept him. Does that make sense? 
It's in the Bible. And I have no problem with the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexisting. Only people who are, have limited, finite minds have a problem with that because the Bible teaches both. That's why it's great to teach the whole counsel of God because you're going to teach chapters about the sovereignty of God and you're going to teach chapters about the free will of man and they're both in the Bible and you teach them both. Amen? There are people that will skip over chapters because it doesn't agree with their theology. You need to, it's not about our theology. It's about what does the Bible say? Amen? We follow the Bible, not my position. It's what the Bible teaches. If you remove man's free will, it changes the character of God. People predestined for hell with no opportunity to be saved. That's not the God we serve. He didn't create people predestined for hell with no chance to be saved. Remove God's sovereignty. God's not omniscient. If God's not in control, then he doesn't know everything. While there are areas outside of our capability to fully understand with our finite minds, God being outside of time and space, a God that a God that our finite minds can fully grasp would not be great enough to worship. Amen? I'm, if I understood everything about God and I could grasp everything about, about the totality of God, he wouldn't be that great because I'm not that smart. Amen? It's okay to say amen to that. I, I said it. It's true. We're all idiots compared to God. Amen? I mean, he's so... When we get to heaven, we are going to be blown away. Amen? Heaven is so much better. By the way, we don't talk about heaven enough. Heaven is amazing. Amen? And we're not going to be floating around on clouds with harps. It's not in the Bible. We're going to be hanging out with the king of kings. There are feasts in heaven. Amen? We're going to be, we're going to, the Bible says he's preparing a place for us. He spent seven days, six days creating the heavens and the earth, and he spent 2,000 preparing a place for us. It's going to rock, amen? Heaven's going to be amazing. And, you know, heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place, amen? And guys, we should desire that and be thankful of that and be mindful of that. When you get a flat tire, you're going to heaven, Amen? When something happens with the job, when you got a difficulty going, heaven. I'd like to go this afternoon. By the way, we know that the Lord's waiting for the last person to get saved so the rapture can happen. And if that's you, let's get about it today. Amen? <laughs> I'm ready for heaven. Jesus it, to Nicodemus, as I said, never mentions election or predestination once. Amen? He just says, you need to be born again, bro. Are you religious? You need to be born again. He didn't say, keep being religious, keep wearing your black robes, keep being a good man. He said, no, no, you need to be born again. And I don't care who you are, how good you think you are, you're a sinner like the rest of us, and you need to be born again. Example for us in speaking to the unsaved, talk about human responsibility, not election. You don't say, well, yeah, so I'd like to talk to you about the Lord, but I don't know if you're one of the elect or not, so if you're not, this really won't pertain to you, but let me just tell some things to you in case you are one of the elect got to be kidding me. Stop it already. By the way, most people that, that grab a hold of that theology spend more time trying to convert Christians to Calvinists than they do unbelievers to Christ. Well, if it's just sovereignty of God and he's already predestined, he's going to get saved. I don't have to share my faith. I'm not saying that all people that hold that reformed theology are that way. A lot of them do share their faith a lot. But the point I'm making is we need to recognize that he desires that none should perish. We should have a heart for every lost person on this planet. 
Election and predestination for the believers speaks of the security of those who are saved. It's a great source of encouragement for these believers dealing with great persecution, greater still to come that they are secure in Christ. Notice what he says there, in sanctification of the Spirit. So he talks about the fact that God knew, knows who's going to be saved, and we're chosen by God, and praise God for that. Our name's written in the Lamb's book of life. No one can ever snatch us out of his hand. We have that security in him. Then he says, in sanctification of the Spirit. The result of true salvation is a life indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as I said, is either in you, upon you, in, in you, with you, or upon you, and empowering you to walk in faithful obedience. What does the Holy Spirit do? He convicts you of sin, and he comforts you when you're hurting. Amen? He comforts you in the difficult times, and he convicts you in your rebellious times, and he never leaves you. So when you go to sin, you take the Holy Spirit with you. When it, wherever you go, he never leaves you, and he is with you. A life of faithful obedience is impossible apart from the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Again, John the Baptist, I must decrease that he might increase. There needs to be less of us and more of the Holy Spirit. Every morning when I wake up, the first thing I do is say, yes, Lord. And then I say, Lord, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. Lord, bring divine appointments today. Let me be used for your kingdom and your glory. And Lord, I can't do it without you. I desperately need you. Lord, please fill me afresh before my feet hit the ground. I don't want to brush my teeth not filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want, to, I want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because if we want to be men and women that God can use, there needs to be less of us and more of Him. Amen? And that only happens if we walk in. And they say, why do you have to pray every day? Because I leak. <laughs> Amen? Fill me afresh. I leaked out. I fill me again. We need to die daily to the flesh, being filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Less trying in my flesh and more dying. There's a new Davidism, less trying, more dying. Can I get an amen? amen. Less trying, more dying. I'm going to try, I'm going to do better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible five hours a day, every day. It's New Year's resolution coming up. And the second day, you're, you fall asleep in your Bible. Don't try, die. Amen? Die to yourself. Less of me, Lord. I can't do this without you. Evidence of being chosen, saved, redeemed, and forgiven is the Holy Spirit is inside of you, moving you to a life of faith and obedience. The word sanctification is being set apart unto the Lord. God's doing a work in you. He's molding you more into the image of his son. We should be closer to the Lord tomorrow than we are today and closer today than we were yesterday. Amen? It's a, it's a sanctification. You're growing in the Lord, finally. And then he says, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is perfect as we're about to go to communion. You know, the Day of Atonement, what did they do? They sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Only time he could enter into the veil, he would bring the blood of the lamb and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Again, a picture of what they saw when they came into the tomb with angels on each end and the sprinkling of the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but blood of Jesus. On the Day of Atonement, the blood on the mercy seat, the covering of the law, a picture of the cross and the empty tomb. And so we see here the work of the Father, He chose you, election. We see the work of the Spirit, He sanctifies you. He's doing a, a, he's doing a constant work in you. That work continues until the day you get to heaven. Amen? And then we see that it's, none of it's possible without the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. 
How do we know we're chosen? We respond to the gospel. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. He sets us apart for holy use. He conforms us more into the image of our Son. But praise God for the work of the Son, because while we were, are being sanctified, being conformed to the image of the Son, again, we still leak and need to be filled afresh. We need to walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But since we still inhabit the flesh, we must die daily to its desires. And praise God while the sanctification is in process, making us more like Jesus, helping us to walk in faith and obedience. Praise God the justification is a finished work. Because Jesus died on the cross, because of his shed blood, I'm forgiven. You're forgiven. You're redeemed. You're born again. You're going to heaven. You have the promise of eternal life. Again, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Praise God. Amen. And because of that, because of his blood was sprinkled, we've been justified, just as if I never sinned. When the father looks at you, he sees you through the shed blood of his son, and he sees you as holy. He sees you as perfect. Do you know that there's going to be the the great white throne judgment, not for us. Because gonna, the Father's going to see us through the shed blood of the Son, and He's going to see us as perfect and holy. We will go to the Bema seat. We will be accountable for how faithful we were with the gifts that He's given to us. Believe it or not, He's going to give us gifts for being faithful to do what He called us to do and gifted us to do. Amen? That's the God that we serve. The work of the Godhead in salvation. The work of the Father, election, the work of the Spirit, sanctification, the work of the Son, praise God, redemption. Then he finishes off with grace to you and peace be multiplied. Grace, the word there in Greek is charis. It means unmerited favor, being given something you don't deserve. And then peace is shalom. Uh, so Greek, grace is in Greek charis, which means unmerited favor, being given something you don't deserve. Shalom means peace, quietness, rest. The Bible says, come unto me all who will labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Notice in the Bible, it's always grace and then peace, because without God's grace, we can never have peace. Amen? Because of the grace of God, we can have peace with God. You cannot have peace if you don't know the Prince of Peace. Amen? Boy, does our government need to hear that. Amen? Our neighbors need to hear that. And guess who God enlisted to tell them? Us. Amen? Let's not keep it to ourselves. So... True source of peace, not the absence of physical trials or persecution, but right standing before God. The glorious work of God bringing peace to sinful man, again, through the work of the Father, election, through the work of the Spirit, sanctification, and through the work of the Son, redemption. Now we're going to go to time of communion. And communion is something that the Lord commanded us to do, called us to do. He said, and as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I want to say this, communion or the Lord's Supper is for believers, so if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, this is not for you, but we can change that right now. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. It's a confession of your, I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven. And Jesus is the only one who can save me. And I believe that he's God. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. I want to invite him to be the Lord of my life. So that's the prayer that we need to pray if you've not given your life to the Lord. But if you've given your life to the Lord, Communion should be a time where three things, I say this every time we take communion, three things I would encourage you to do. First, do this in remembrance of him. Look back to the cross of Calvary. The worship team is going to play that you'll have the elements, hold on to them, we'll take them together, and take a few moments just to thank God for the cross and remember the greatest act of love in all of human history. But not only do we look back to the cross, but we look within. 
and examine our own hearts before the Lord. This may need to be a time of confession. Lord, you know this is an area where I've been struggling. Lord, please forgive me. So look back to the cross, look within. But the Bible also said, Jesus said, when you do this again, you'll do this with me in heaven. Guys, we get to look forward to the day we will take communion in heaven with him. And we should be heavenly focused. Amen? Lord, we thank you. We praise you as you go now to this time of communion. Lord, may we examine our own hearts before you. And Lord, I pray for anybody here that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you're here today and you've never given your life to the Lord, you've never said, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ is God. He died on the cross for me. If the Holy Spirit's drawing you unto himself, right now I'll give you an opportunity to make that public profession. And if you do, by simply by raising your hand, just saying, look, I, I want to I give my life to the Lord. Then I'll pray a prayer with you and you can leave here knowing that you're born again, you're a new creation in Christ, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. If it comes from a sincere heart and recognition of your sin, God will forgive you right now. If that's your desire, anybody here at all, just raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Anybody at all, let today be the day of salvation. Don't leave here without him. Anyone, anyone at all. Lord, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. And now as we go this time of communion, just prepare our hearts before you.